0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem.
1: Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Joining me today from Bangkok is Dan Itzara, who's the co-founder and chief operating officer of Glazik. Glazik are a designer prescription eyewear and sunwear company based in Thailand. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Dan, there's so much that I want to learn from you. We're going to talk about, or let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about building a business in Thailand. We're going to talk about being Thai in Thailand or being American Thai in Thailand. Or being a little bit of both, maybe. Exactly. In the twilight zone. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Winning in both worlds. Flying planes. All that lies in between. You have possibly the best resume of all the guests that I've ever interviewed here So listeners, check this out. Dan Itzara has worked for, in some capacity, Amazon, Google, the US Air Force, and NASA. Did I get those right? Uh, Yep. There you go. Although I
0: was only at NASA for a short time. Right, but
1: you're at NASA. You don't have to justify it, do you, really? I mean, you know, there you go. That happens to be one of the best layout of a resume I've ever seen. So we're going to talk about how that sort of... Brings to bear on being a startup founder as well. So let's start at the beginning. Glazik, this is your thing. This is your startup, your baby. It's an eyewear, glasses, prescription eyewear, somewhere company based in Bangkok. Why did you decide to build a, well, can I call it, a, what do you call it? An eyewear or glasses company? How do you describe so, it? We, I call it an e commerce
0: brand for prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. Got it. So we're we are a brand. We don't we don't sell other frames from you know Ray Ban or or Oakley or whatever. So we're our own brand. But at the same time, everything we do is based on vertical integration. You know, we we sell essentially direct from the factory to the mm-hmm. customer, or direct from our suppliers to the customer. And we do a whole bunch of things that a lot of e-commerce companies do in principle um, that are much more difficult in implementation. Which comes down to building a really, really lean supply chain and making everything just in time and making a really, really lean business. So that's sort of like what Classic is all about from the business standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, From the the customer standpoint, bottom line, we want to offer customers world-class quality eyeglasses and offer them for cheaper than any other brand can do.
1: Right. Uh, these are pretty cool eyeglasses. I mean, the, uh, looking at your collection as well, they're quite designer. I mean, they're not sort of necessarily designer prices, but the style. I mean, this looks like something straight out of a men's magazine. You've got women's eyeglasses as well. Just, I was just looking through the men's glasses myself earlier today, and I thought, wow, these look pretty damn cool. You know, they're quite, they're a bit funky as well. They're not sort of like straightforward, standard prescription eyeglasses. They're a bit stylish, so.
0: Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.
1: I don't know where you get your influences from. It's quite, I mean, classic, classic. It seems to be quite sort of a, you've got that bit of that sort of Jamin Street, Taylor vibe going on there. What are your influences?
0: Well, so actually, I don't deal with the design part of the company very much at all. It's actually one of my co-founders. But I would say that, you know, especially to Western eyes, our products definitely look a little bit different. I mean, they look different in Thailand as well. Um, And part of it is this sort of like up-and-coming, I call it the hipster culture, and Mm. I don't mean that in a negative way at all, just sort of this up-and-coming hip culture in Thailand that's sort of the core of our customer base. So a lot of people who are young professionals, over half of our customers are actually under 30 years old. Mm. So that's sort of the core of, of our customer base and who we try to respond to.
1: Right. So where did the idea for this come from? Did you just, you know, were you sort of lying in bed one day and thought, yep, I've got to start a prescription or an eyewear company? How how did that sort of all come about? Um, Well, definitely
0: not just a random idea. So I I guess I can just start from the beginning. Um, My one of my other co-founders is my cousin, and her part of the family is actually involved in the optical industry. So they Um, in various parts of the supply chain in the optical industry. Mm -hmm. And um, it was one day when, I think I was still working at Amazon at the time, but I went to my sister's wedding and she was there. And, you know, we started talking about this concept that she had. And obviously Warby Parker was a big inspiration for this, but we also saw that some of the lessons that Warby Parker had learned over time. Um, If you kind of look at, I think they... From 2006-ish timeframe until now, um, they've really changed how they've done business. Mm. And when we looked at that, we kind of thought like, hey, you know, we can do a lot of these things better than Warby Parker. You know, we have the network between basically part of my family. You know, we have the network to really do really really close integration with our suppliers. You know, we have a unique market Southeast Asia that's growing very rapidly. This is like a, a really unique and valuable opportunity. And then in addition to that, like from my point of view, I kind of thought, well, you know, here's a business that um, have a unique network that's not easy to duplicate. Um, It certainly requires a lot of technical know-how and experience um, from the just point of view of like having somebody with experience building something. Um, And then you, if we're going to operate it in Thailand, like, you know, we need to have some people who are familiar with Thailand and can speak Thai and I kind mm. of thought like you know this is sort of an opportunity that's pretty well fit for me and these sort of things don't come around um, every day and so I kind of got together with her and we sort of helped I sort of helped her uh, develop the business concept further and then kind of that's all she wrote or how, that's how things got started
1: right got it so you started with your cousin she had a, an idea and you saw a market opportunity you were influenced by Warby Parker. Warby Parker being, their U.S. eyeglass company. They're, they're sort of quite sort of vintage, aren't they? In their styling, and I don't know if they have a presence in Asia much, so much in Southeast Asia. Were they there? Did they have sort of any kind of online presence in Thailand or Southeast Asia when you had this they idea? No, and they don't. I, I don't believe they have a presence
0: now either, unless it's just through like smaller channels, like right. um, you know, it's just plain retailers. Um, what Warby Parker does is actually, they do a lot of things that are sort of unique to the US market simply because of how, insur- how medical insurance and vision insurance works in the US. So those things are not quite applicable to Southeast Asia. Actually, what we're doing that's quite different is that um, you know, in the US, medical insurance has their own system and things are kind of separate between um, the optometry clinics and the retail stores to a certain extent, Mm. whereas in Asia, customers expect to have a complete experience, a seamless experience. So part of what we're doing with our company that's very, very different is we're partnering with optical retail chains, or in particular, one optical retail chain with over 100 locations in Thailand. And we work with them to uh, have them provide us prescription measurement, after sales service, as well as uh, doing try-ons, so yeah. having a place where customers can try on our frames. So it's it's similar, and yes, that we're selling we're selling eyeglasses just like Warby Parker, but the environment's completely different, um, and it requires us to do a lot of different things as a company.
1: Yeah, and, and looking at your background, Dan, that you had previously worked in Amazon, and before that, Google, so to me, those make sense in that Okay, well, you would learn, have learned a lot of Amazon, especially on the logistics side of building a business like this, and Google, obviously, Well, there's so much applicable to what you're doing. Then you have the U.S. Air Force and NASA. Well, let's take the U.S. Air Force as an example because you were there for a number of years. Um, I was. Where does that sort of fit in? Do you see that as relevant to building an eyeglass company in the sort of the context of what you're doing? Does that sort of make sense to you? Well... I actually see it as
0: relevant to leadership in general. Um, I, I kind of like to say that you know I'm on my second career. You know, my first career was everything that I did in aerospace and and government and everything like that. But I really see myself mm. every day applying the lessons I learned when I was in the U.S. Air Force. Everything that I learned about how to how to organize a team, how to how to set up a process, an operational process to produce a product. Um, so just to give all the listeners a little bit more background, what I did for the Air Force was I was a flight test engineer, which means basically I worked in a unit that tested new technologies um, on aircraft. So it might be you know, a new computer, a new targeting system, a new a new um, weapon system or whatever. Um, and so obviously there's a, there's a certain amount of risk that goes into that. Um, and... We did a good job, I thought, of having processes to identify and mitigate risk. Um, whenever you, whenever you fly, there's there's nobody who's perfect, and people make mistakes all the time. And what I what I really liked about the process in the Air Force was it was something where nobody was really blamed for making a mistake. It was more like we worked on setting up a process to minimize mistakes, to cross check what everybody was doing. So every day when we would uh, when we, when we had to go flying that day we'd come in in the morning beforehand we'd brief what we were going to do we had a plan um, we'd go over all the pertinent aspects especially anything that was safety related in the plan. we'd go out and fly it, uh, take copious notes during the flight, execute everything that we could execute and then when we came back we'd go and debrief and you know if things didn't go well or if we made some mistakes here or there if I messed up a test point or whatever um, you know like we would say it and it would just be kind of like oh okay well, you know I screwed that up. Now let's analyze what were the what were the reasons behind me or whoever was on the airplane. What were the reasons that that wasn't executed correctly? Mm-hmm. And what can we do in our processes in the future to to do a better job at that? And so that sort of like cyclical operation I think really, you know, I sort of took I've taken that and used that a lot in how we structure the company today.
1: Right. So you mentioned earlier that you were building a lean operation for your uh, your eyeglass company. So for Classic, you were trying to make it as lean as possible. And listeners may be familiar with lean startup, all that sort of lean management philosophy. People may be f- familiar with ideas like minimum viable product or, you know, just the whole sort of lean idea of test 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 you know have a hypothesis and test something split test and so on which they may be familiar with for example like on the most basic level sending out a newsletter and testing a hypothesis of the title in the newsletter i mean that's that's sort of that strategy in a nutshell in a very very simple in a very simple example but take that to flying a plane for example you know can you still approach that in the same manner like you would test in the startup world I mean, because the, the the failure the the consequences of failure are, are significantly different aren't they i mean if i get a, a newsletter wrong then some people don't open it but if i get the the technology on the plane wrong you know people's lives are at risk so could you could you go into that with the same kind of philosophy of like having a hypothesis and testing and risking it so yeah you you definitely can because what
0: so a f- when, when I talk about a failure or somebody doing something wrong um, in the context of flying an airplane, it's not like, oh, I did something wrong and suddenly and suddenly we're, we're crashing or something like that. Um, it may just be missing a step on a checklist and then having, you know, let's say the pilot misses a step on the checklist and, and co-pilot comes in and says, hey, hey, we missed that and our setup wasn't correct. Let's go do it over again. So um, I think one of the interesting insights uh that that we had when we were doing flight operations was you know it's don't ignore the small mistakes because it's a whole bunch of small mistakes that lead to the big you know uh, catastrophic failures Mm -hmm. so we're always sort of trying to sense what were what were the small things What what are the little details that aren't quite right and not just and not just sort of skip over them and i think that oftentimes in a lot of organizations, people tend to do that because it's sort of like if you have this environment where you're sort of blamed for your mistakes, and you make a mistake that's like it's not it's not a huge deal, it's not perfectly correct, but like somebody you know it's not a big deal. Somebody can make up for it. There was a a misspelling in your newsletter or or something like that. Um, you know, there's there's this sort of there's a sort of uh, natural human tendency, I think, to say like okay, well everything went fine. You know, there are a few rough patches, mm-hmm. but but, you know, let's, let's ignore those. Whereas the philosophy that I saw in the flying world was, hey, you know, like, one, don't blame, don't blame the person because everybody's mortal, everyone's human, and we all make mistakes. And two, like, let's pick up on those little rough patches and figure out what is the root cause behind all of these. Let's mm-hmm. go detect what went wrong and then try and fix the root cause of
1: it. Right. That's a mindset thing, isn't it? Because if you train that mindset, then the small errors, the small mistakes often lead to bigger mistakes, don't they? So, I mean, if you have an organization which picks up on those, then the bigger mistakes will be identified and dealt with, won't they? Rather than hidden away. I mean, if you have a culture of blame, which is always difficult, isn't it? When you have a very hierarchical setup and big IT, you know, that people feel that they want to hide the bad news. And I wonder as well, I mean, especially when you're dealing with, um, you know, a startup in Asia, I mean, Thai people are so friendly. I mean, we'll talk about your background as well in a minute because it may not be obvious from the listeners that you have Thai backgrounds. Well, your parents were Thai and right. you speak Thai near fluently. Um, but Thai people are so friendly and so nice that they, they like, like the Japanese here, they don't like confrontation. They don't like saying there's a mistake necessarily. So I, I wonder how you sort of culture that, that, that mindset in a group of people who you know may have been programmed another way if i can use that in a rough sense yeah i think that's very valid certainly there's like a um
0: the sense of hierarchy and rank is much stronger in in thai culture and i think probably in a lot of other asian cultures too although i i don't have firsthand experience necessarily but certainly in thai culture there's a strong um sense of hierarchy even in the way you address somebody as a pronoun you know like if you're um, or the way you address yourself. So if I'm talking with um, an employee, for example, uh, it would be very common in Thai for me to address them with the term that means like younger sibling, um, and for them to address me with the term that means older sibling, Does if that makes sense. Absolutely. And there isn't really, um, for, for anybody who speaks Thai, it's Nong and P, right? Nong is like younger sibling, brother or sister. P is older. Um, And there, there isn't really, well, unless you use a very, a more formal term, there isn't really a, actually a pronoun that you can use with somebody else that's informal, um, on, on that same level of formality, but does not have some kind of a older or younger sort of, Mm. rank structure attached to it so it's it's almost like it's
1: yeah it's built into the language itself yes yeah yeah that i mean to to a casual observer it means nothing it's just like well it's just language but what we're trying to get to is the cultures encoded in the language isn't it because if you i guess if you build a company and everybody what was the 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 suffix for for older brother in older is older is p so right. that's like older older sibling right so if they called you that then what sort of implied as well is like you're the boss you know every time they say that and therefore you're responsible for everything I guess you know it's sort of that's the extreme case isn't it so people may think it's just language but it also encodes some sort of structure within these organizations and you have to be very conscious of that what what do you do how how do you actually actively go the other way with that without sort of making people feel uncomfortable um well I mean it's I think it's just it's not
0: extremely easy for for one I try not to use those pronouns I actually sort of consciously so in Thai you can kind of um, they call it like speaking over um, you can use um, English words Um, so Mm. sometimes I'll just say I or like me or whatever Um, so sometimes I'll do that just to avoid using those kinds of terms all of the time although it's kind of difficult because it 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 sometimes sounds a little bit weird in Thai if that makes (laughs) sense but But I mean, I sound kind of weird when I say <laughs> "exactly." So that's, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the bigger thing is, and this is also something that I think I took a lot from Amazon. Or there's this sort of, you know, Amazon has their like the Amazon values, and one of them is they call "disagree and commit," which basically means like, like, hey, you know, you have to like speak up if you don't agree with something. Yeah. Um, and so I really try and encourage that. And even if, even if. Um, let's say one of my employees disagrees with my point of view or something like that, Um, or or even if they're wrong, I try to always say something like, hey, you know, uh, I don't think it's correct in this case, but I'm really glad that you brought it up and good job bringing it up. Exactly, exactly. um, And I, I sort of, I have this viewpoint that, yes, you know, people talk about like, this culture is this way, this culture is that way, but I kind of feel that like culture is really what you make of it right it's just the actions that you take or that all the people around you take so if as a leader you're always trying to encourage people to speak up you know you're not biting off people's heads when they're wrong mm-hmm. and you're kind of working on the process and trying to get everybody involved in like improving the process rather than being like oh well you know this project wasn't quite right and this person was the one responsible and so it's their fault mm-hmm. you know so if you take the former point of view then I think that builds a culture where people want to work together and they don't feel like, you know, they don't feel like they're sort of, you know, under this critical eye all of the time. And that's, that's when I think people do their best work is when they're working together.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There was the, uh, what was the book? Was it outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about, I think he he shares an example and one you'll probably uh, appreciate Korean airlines and I think the example he talks about that Korean airlines, I think in the 80s, had like the worst safety record in the world. And it wasn't necessarily a lack of technology because the Koreans were quite advanced. So mm. they, they went into Korean airlines to have a look at it. And, you know, what was the problem? And, the you know, what people think about when they talk about airlines and airline crashes is they, they sort of assume that, you know, an engine blows up and the, the plane crashes. But that's extremely rare that, instance, most of the the crashes or fatalities are caused by pilot error. So they were saying you know, they were looking at what causes the pilot error, what was the culture that caused that? And they found that Korean Airlines of all the airlines were probably one of the most what's the word, stratified, one of the most, uh, auth- what's the word, hierarchical. hierarchical, that's the word, yeah. So they would have a situation where the, the, the co-pilot or the underpilot, I guess, you know, the junior would take the, the uniform of the pilot, you know, when he checked into the hotel and make sure it was, you know, like dry cleaned and everything was laid out for him. So, you know, the pilot was the top of the the pyramid he, he was absolute unchallengeable infallible boss so mm-hmm. in in cases where there were crashes it was often the case where the pilot would say okay we're going you know we're heading in this direction and maybe the the co-pilot would say oh by the way i think you made a mistake and but they wouldn't challenge because that was all sort of encoded in the whole setup so they found actually one way of actually addressing us that was they changed the language from... They forced the Korean pilots to learn and speak English. And that was, you know, the most effective way of addressing that sort of internal hierarchy because all the language encoded the relationships between the pilot and the co-pilot and all the other people in the staff and so on. By changing it to English, it got rid of all those kind of like honorifics and all the kind of things that we talked about. So there you go. It's sort of a, bit of a bit of a diversion, but I just think it's fascinating, that whole thing about language and culture, and especially when you are sort of sitting in between these two worlds, and you can see both sides, if you like, being both, I suppose we're getting into it, American and Thai. More, I think maybe a little bit more American than Thai, but uh, I've picked up a little bit while I'm out here yeah well let's talk about that i mean let's talk about your background because i think that's interesting that you i mean as i said you have a thai name your parents are thai your parents moved from thailand to the u.s you grew up you were born in the u.s i was born in the u.s right born in michigan where
0: where was it that you were born i was born in Chicago. chicago so my yeah my parents actually came to the u.s for their medical residency um so they're they're both doctors right um So I was born while they were both still in Chicago, but I mostly grew up in Northern California, which is where they moved after they completed their medical training and started practicing.
1: Right. So when you came back to Thailand, what was the the driver for you then? Were you going back to Thailand to start a business, to set something up? Or, you know, looking, I know you had that, that meeting with your cousin, obviously that instigated a whole sort of series of events did you have a master plan in your mind or was it just curiosity to get back to Thailand what was your rationale for coming back
0: so for Thailand specifically it was to start this business um however there's you know there's always been a part of me that's wanted to experience living overseas um I guess like I've always felt that that um I don't know my perspective is uh uh, or I'd gain a broader perspective from being overseas. Uh, you know, one thing that I found is so. Just to just to go backwards a little bit. Um, so I left the the Air Force to go to an MBA program. So I did my MBA at Michigan. Mm. Um, and one thing that I really found when when I was in my MBA program was, you know, all of my life I'd sort of been with the same people or the same sorts of people, right? Like you go through elementary school and high school and obviously it's like the people you grow up with. And then I went to MIT. It's a very engineering focused Mm. university and I did my degree in engineering. Um, And then I went into the air force as an engineer um, in a field, in in a specialty in the air force that was pretty technical. So I kind of thought, you know, throughout my entire life, I mean, ever since, College, pretty much. I'd sort of been with a certain type of person, right? Like mostly men, mostly engineers. Um, and that completely changed when I when I went to do do my MBA. You know, there's mm. all sorts of people, you know, from all sorts of different career fields. Not just technical people, not just engineers, but you know, finance people, consultants, what have you, marketers, um, and people from kind of kind of all over. Um, and I kind of, I don't know, maybe that sort of. Put the bug in my mind that, you know, there's, you know, I want to experience more than just this closed group or, or small group mm. that, I'd, that I'd already seen. So I think that was a part of it, too.
1: Right. Okay. You're curious for the world. And obviously, yeah. Th- Thailand for you was a bit of a soft landing. Or maybe not. Well, as It could be, in many ways, it could be more of a challenge, isn't it? Because for me to go to Thailand, there's no expectations about who I am or where I'm from because I visually don't look Thai. And I, you know, my Thai language is pretty awful by comparison. So, you know, but for you, you visually look Thai. So when people (laughs) look at you, they think, are you Thai? You maybe kind of act a bit American, you know, you dress a bit American. Was there sort of a bit of that, that they didn't know where you fit in? Or you didn't know where you fit in when you moved to Thailand? Oh, there's still still quite a bit of that. (laughs) I mean... Uh, like I, I think I was telling you
0: before we started recording that you know oftentimes you know I'll I'll start speaking Thai to somebody and they'll kind of say like oh like where did you grow up because right. like your Thai is pretty good but it's not you know there's something kind of off you know or my friends will tell me I speak Thai with American accent sometimes wow um, such a thing yeah or or I was at this conference the other the other day. Um, and I was representing my business, classic, of course. And I said, "Yes, I'm from I'm from Thailand, and, and here's my business and everything." And they said, "You sound really American. Right? Um, are Are you really Are you really <laughs> sure you're from Thailand?" So. I, I I still get that
1: quite a bit. Right. Um how, how but do you deal with that? Your... Does, does that sort of not put doubt in your mind? Because if people keep asking you like who you who you are and so on. I mean, I, I say this from personal experience as well. I mean, you know, I've lived outside of Britain for a long time. Um, you know, my son is half Japanese, half English. You know, he goes through that as well. He's he's I mean, he's twelve, he's growing up and going through that. And I just wonder what sort of experience they have. Because it, there's, a, there's a real comfort in knowing that, you know, you're born in Michigan or you're born in Chicago, you grew up in Chicago and you're American and you came from two sort of, you know, very white middle-class parents. That's sort of very comfortable <laughs> for some people because there's no, there's no questions, are there, about that. But for you, there's, there's a whole bunch of questions. Does that put doubt in your mind? Um,
0: I mean, not anymore. I think that I've, it's something that I've always had throughout my life, even growing up in America. I didn't grow up in a big city or anything like that. Um, so even growing up in America, you know, you kind of get the, you know, are you from here sort of a thing oh, until, right. of course, until, until I open my mouth then, and say, yes, dude, I'm, I'm from right. here. And, and, then, and then I sort of get this look of like, oh, okay, yeah, you're definitely from like, not just here, but specifically Northern
1: California. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. But, I, you know, I think here's the thing, Dan, is that, I mean, I refer back to the, you know, the work of people like Tony Shea who, you know, phenomenal uh, entrepreneur who obviously set up Zappos, acquired yeah. by Amazon. And just reading his work as well, I mean, he, Tony Shea obviously comes from, was it a Vietnamese immigrant family, I think? I think that's where the, the name comes from. But, mm. you know, I think there's something about being multicultural that lends itself very strongly to being in the business that you both are in, which is, you know, e-commerce and retail, effectively, that you have, I mean, obviously, you don't grow up as shopkeepers, right? You know, you're not like sort of trained in that respect, but you grow up understanding people's feelings in a way, I think better than most people because you've gone through certain experiences. And I think that's so powerful, that empathy, when it comes to the business that you're in. And I just wonder if you sort of have experienced that yourself or you're sort of aware of it, Because I think there's something something there, definitely, that people who sort of live in those kind of cross-cultural worlds, in-between worlds, have developed a very strong sense of empathy for other people, and that is a powerful tool for retail and e-commerce.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm aware of it every day, or actually actually every day that that I'm sort of talking to customers, or, or if I'm talking to a customer or talking to the people who talk to customers are looking at the preferences or the comments that customers have. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of different um, interesting aspects of, about things, right? Especially in in Thailand, in a I would say a, it's still a developing economy, mm. but there's definitely a a segment of people who are you know wealthier than in the past. You know, they 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 sort of aspirations for like you know fashion and like you know they want to be they want to be like cool and like you know modern you know and different from their parents so Mm -hmm. there's there's that aspect as well um i guess like maybe i'm not doing such a great job describing it but i kind of see it in little subtle ways all the Mm -hmm. time
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely it's it's hard to describe that's that's the reason why it's hard to do a great job of describing it because it's a it's an emotional empathy thing right which you know I mean, you look at, for example, the success of Apple and you look at their, their their staff training books for the genius crew, that word empathy comes up so many times in that manual. And it's something necessarily, I don't think you can train, you just have. Because, you know, when you've grown up in a situation where you're, you're constantly observing cultures and people's behaviours and you're not sort of looking through the lens of of one culture you see people's behavior and how they think about things as well. So I think it gives people a real advantage. So, I mean, let's talk about how that all sort of came about when you started growing the business in Thailand. You know, the plan. So let's sort of backtrack a little bit here, how you grew. Mm -hmm. Because there's an interesting part in your story here that you say you grew the business to cash positive within six months. Is that correct, if I'm right? Uh, operationally, yes. Operationally, okay. Yeah. For, yeah. I mean, even still, that's still a major achievement. So I'm just wondering how all that came about, because to get operationally positive in any retail or e-commerce business is pretty tough, you know, they're notoriously difficult to, to make the margins unless you find the right sort of product. But then when you, when you find the right product, you know, the competitors step into the market because they realize there's money to be made, right? So tell us a little bit about how the business was built in the early days. Uh, sure. So, like, you know, we always knew that um, just talking
0: with our. So we have a very close relationship with, with our um, with our suppliers, our lens suppliers in particular. Um, and just talking with them, um, we knew that they'd been doing uh, a lot of manufacturing for for overseas, and they've been sort of stepping more into sort of this just in time manufacturing thing, where they were getting an order or getting a whole bunch of different orders making all these custom lenses and then shipping them out you know in bulk the next day um what we knew that we wanted to do was see if they could you know they were doing it on you know their their sort of unit of output was this crate right that that was being shipped overseas Um, but what we wanted to do was see if we could get that unit of output to become basically one one unit right like one pair of eyeglasses Um, so we worked really, really closely with them. You know, we knew that uh, the way to go about this was really integrating our systems with, with the factory over there, um, which when I say over there, I mean an hour north of where I'm sitting right now. So it's not too difficult to work with them.
1: Right, so um, it's in Thailand, you're saying, the factory? Right? It's in Thailand,
0: yeah. It's, it's basically a little, bit, a little bit north of the city, mm. um, which, is, which is nice for like when, we have to, when we have to work really, really closely with them. Mm-hmm. um so uh what we really said about building was you know between in in a normal when a, when in a normal situation in a normal eyeglasses retailer when a customer orders a pair of eyeglasses there's all these things that sort of have to happen in between them saying i want this pair with these and here's my prescription and actually making that pair of eyeglasses right so you have to measure the prescription and there's all these other things about having to Um, There's the number of different lenses that you can or materials you can actually use to make lenses is really, really huge. So you have to sort of make some choices based on the customer's prescription and whether, you know, what type of frame they chose and all sorts of other things like that. Bottom line is we set about trying to automate that process. So automate everything in the middle and trying to just make that middle part of the process as seamless as possible and with as little human intervention as possible right. if that makes sense yeah. so uh,
1: yeah. just so explain to me i don't understand enough about the industry but is it difficult to standardize that because every pair of eyeglasses has uh, you know specific you know dimensions for a customer or specific lens strengths and so on. I don't. I don't wear glasses, so I've never had my eyes tested for that. I think they're okay, but I'm doing all right now. But you know, you know, I, I don't. I'm not familiar with all the terms. It seems that if the prescription, everything's tested, measured, and so on, it makes it harder than to standardize that product and produce it at the kind of margins that you need to make a profit. Well, certainly. So, what what we're doing that really helps us. Have a
0: good margin is basically we 're manufacturing everything just in time right. so basically we just keep the raw materials um, and we don 't actually we don 't actually put everything together um, and we don't actually purchase the lenses until an order has already come in the door mm. so that makes it very very scalable for us um, so other than the frame inventory which does have a three month or so lead time um, everything else that we do can be done virtually just in time so that's a big that's a big difference um, the other thing that we do is we only keep our inventory in one place. We don't uh, we don't take you know a little bit of inventory and put it at this shop here and a little bit at this shop there, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And same with uh, working with our supplier, we don't spread out our lab operations. So normally your lenses need to be made for your prescription, so we don't have a little facility there, a little facility here, a little facility there, and so on. It's all, centralized and and then shipped out to wherever it needs to go right so really really it was stitching those pieces together uh, was the main work that we did within like the first six months before we launched or something
1: hmm.
0: um, and that was really like the main challenge in our supply chain um, There's other challenges in in, in marketing, but but in terms of just the basic operations of the business, uh, I'd say that was that was the the main thing we did was just putting all the pieces together, sort of going through the entire value chain and one by one trying to automate every single piece of it.
1: Mm. When you were doing that, were you sort of thinking back to your Air Force days again? Was that sort of coming in as training? What did you learn there? Because I imagine that must have been pretty tough to make all that work, and because you had so many different moving parts. You had, you know, different interests. You had all that sort of challenge with like integrating your systems and so on. Where did that come into play? Well, <laughs> I'll tell you what did come into play is we made a lot of mistakes in the
0: process, which right. is which
1: is fine. And well, tell natural. us about those because that's fascinating because that's the sort of inspiring part of the journey, isn't it? That you can share those mistakes. What did you screw up? Oh, I mean, I mean, there are, there are multiple places where we we just. A lot of it was just
0: not knowing or not knowing all the details well enough yet. yeah. Um, so like one one good example, one big piece of our system that we had to rebuild was that we had one central we have one central data system that sort of like uh, holds all of the data about our products as well as how they are assembled, if that makes sense. Hmm. So that the when the customer orders a product, um, it can tell the factory, the back end, what are the appropriate pieces to put together? Mm-hmm. Um, and we completely we missed a quite important concept, and basically ended up having to rebuild it after we had already launched. So it was kind of like you know the airplane's yeah. already flying, and now you're here trying to change the <laughs> engines on it. Wow. Um, so that was that was quite a large pain, and it was sort it was of a like, learning experience for sure. For sure, and, right. and there was I, I do remember distinctly that there was one point in time it was. After we had just launched, and I was kind of like looking at how things were, how the data flowed through our system, and how we were sort of putting all of this order data together, and I kind of thought, hmm, you know, this this thing's kind of weird. I I don't know if it's it's the right way to do this or not. Right. You know, maybe maybe we should sit down and and think about this. And I was talking to my another one of my co-founders, um, another technical guy, about this, and we kind of both agreed that it was. That it was, you know, probably probably needed another look, and yeah. then we forgot to write it down, and we didn't take another look until six months later, and and things were kind of like not working very well. Wow. Um. So that was that was definitely <laughs> our fault for not like <laughs> writing it down and sort of being like, hey, this is this might be kind of important, you know, let's let's not let's not just let this one go away in right. the chaos of,
1: you know, everything else that we need to do to build a business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's a great learning experience. When I think yeah. about. I mean, I don't fly planes like you. I have flown a plane only as a test flight. But, you know, I mean, like flying a plane or driving a car, you have to have the immediate feedback. The, the dashboard, which is telling you. I mean, more more importantly, obviously, for flying a plane, because you've got that sort of added variable of altitude as well, right? You need to know if you're going up or down. So, right. you know, it, it's all so important. And you can't be waiting. You can't be waiting even minutes for data to feed back to you, right? Because you, you need to know, am I doing the right thing? If I pull this, does it go up or does it go down? Does it Whatever, you know, is that the right thing to do? When you run your business, do you... I mean, it, it seems a dream to have it in that sort of the ultimate dashboard, if you like, of running a business where you say, right, here are the three metrics that I follow on a daily basis. I wake up in the morning, I look at A, B and C. Are they going up? Are they going down? Great. I need to change that, change that. How close are you to getting it some to that sort of situation? Or do you think that's sort of, you know, a pipe dream to have as a, as an entrepreneur that there's so many moving parts that you can't simplify your business like that? I think you can simplify portions of it. Certainly for for everything we do with marketing and, and
0: advertising, everything that we do in our sales funnel, um, we have really good metrics on that. Um, but there's definitely pieces where things are always moving and sometimes it'll just be, you know, sometimes I'll just have to go into the back end and write a quick script to pull out some data. Right. Um, or sometimes, or sometimes uh, the way, you know, if I need something, uh, if I need to pull some data on a regular basis um, but I don't really have time, you know. I'll go write some very, very rough script that just spits it out as as, as text or something. Um, I, I think that, you know, um, if you look at a a modern airliner, right? So I'll, I'm trying to tie this back to the aviation thing. Hmm. Um, if you look at a modern airliner, you know, everything looks very, very well composed, right? You know, you have your glass cockpit, all these displays, and the data is presented in a very intuitive manner, um, but I kind of think about uh, running a startup as more more of like looking at the the cockpit of a military plane, where oh, yeah. you may have <laughs> one system, and I don't know if you've seen photos where like oh, yeah. you know there's there there may be like one or two systems that that are really well integrated and you know everything's like very well put together, but then there's all these other units of you know things that were added on over time because you know when you when you produce a military airplane, it's sort of yeah. like it's modified and modified and modified over and over and over again. Um, and that's how you end up with all these warts on the outside and, you know, random displays on the inside. And so
1: I think it's probably more like that Same. than it is, you know, your Boeing 787. Right, right. It's not so slick. Oh, yeah, thank you for the analogy. I think that sums up perfectly. You're kind of like the, I mean, you'll be the pilot with the wrench and the duct tape in your back pocket, right? I think that's kind of more of the, the reality, isn't it, of, of that kind oh, of... Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, so- and I mean, like,
0: I think that also that that's okay like things change and you have to be you know like i try to just think you know i try to be comfortable with you know just be comfortable that the things are going to change and sometimes things will be a little bit rough Mm. and like you know the things that need to be worked on like we'll we'll work on and uh you know there's there's a big chicken and the egg problem in in running a startup too right you're very resource limited Mm. Uh, so so you really have to be selective about where you're going to apply apply you know whether it's um, you know the the hours of your development team, or the or the efforts of you know of our supply team mm. that's kind of working on you know inventory or whatever. You know you have to be a little bit selective about where you're going to to put everybody.
1: Yeah. So uh, for yourself as well, Dan. I mean, how how do you now, now that you're a growing business and you've achieved operational, you know, you're operationally positive. So you, how do you decide? where to focus your time because I guess that the danger as well is that I mean as much as it's an advantage that you can code and like you've got the wrench in your pocket type thing is that you know that's great you can fix problems and it's, it's great to have a founder who knows how to fix problems rather than go through a layer of developers um, but there's also danger isn't there that that you can get sort of stuck doing that when you need to be now that you have a growing business Focusing on other areas as well. D- do you have a clear idea of where you should be focusing, or because I'm always, I don't think there's an actually there's a right answer when you're growing a business. I'm just curious to know how each founder chooses to do that, or do you sort of, you know, day to day, we just take it as it comes. Um, I usually try and
0: like for me, I, I have a few roles in the company, and they're completely different, of course. So um, obviously, I help, I help code, I help with the technical team. Uh, I mostly, I deal with most of the fundraising, um, and then I also deal with some of our partnerships having to do with with technical integration. So the the, diff, the really difficult thing, and you're right, being able to code is both a blessing and a curse. Um, the blessing is if I really need to get something done, the, yeah. you know, and I need it to, to be done this way, then I will go and do it, or I will go and at least write a framework and have have the other devs sort of fill that in, so I know it's done exactly the way I want it to be done. The difficult or the 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 caution to that is it's really easy for me to start working on a piece of code and then look up and the entire day is gone.
1: yeah um, and exactly. i didn't I
0: didn't do any of the five <laughs> other things that I needed to do in that day. Um, and yeah. so th- this is where it's been a learning experience for me too. Um, i I think that I've one is I've become much more disciplined with my calendar um, mm. than ever before uh, because I, I start to recognize that if I if I don't sort of set time boxed limits on on the things I'm doing, then you know sometimes the most important things won't get done. Um, but I, I usually try and I, I try and think about my day or my week as being about fifty percent technical and then the other fifty percent all the other things I need to do. But that mm. may change depending on you know what. The state of the company at the time, you know, what we need to get done at the time.
1: Okay. I, I want to just before we round up, there's a question I absolutely have to ask you, Dan, because I'm fascinated. I saw it in your uh, profile. You enjoy climbing mountains.
0: I have climbed some mountains, right. yes.
1: Uh, put you on the spot. What, I mean, what is it, alpine style? or are you sort of 7,000 meters? Or what, what are you doing? What, I mean, what sort of degree of mountain climbing do you do? Well, actually, I haven't been climbing in a while since I started this company, but I, I,
0: I've done I've done both technical and non-technical. So right. technical being, you know, needing like ice axes and crampons and all that other stuff. And, you know, I, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. That was pretty much non-technical, yeah. I would say, you know, like there wasn't, there weren't a lot of objective hazards to, to deal with.
1: Right. The reason I ask, and I, again, there's no correct answer to this, but I, I'm always, uh, I'm Curious to know how your mind works and how you see this is that I'm fascinated by all kind of, you know, the the human spirit, the adventure, and the people who climb mountains obviously interest me because, you know, they're they're wired a little bit differently. And I think they sort of blaze trails for everybody else to follow. And I, I remember reading about Mount Everest, and there's been a few years where, there's been a few wipeouts on my Everest where they've had, you know, a, a lot of fatalities and so on. And, and yeah. now we're, and I think the problem is now that you can effectively pay twenty five or fifty thousand dollars, and you can have a guide take you to the top, even with very little experience. And that's what's yep. causing the problems. And I remember reading one of the the biographies of one of the the guides or some article where he was interviewed, and he was saying, they said, you know, what are the what are the um, the the guests, the guests, if you like, the clients that you Don 't look forward to taking up to the top and he said you know, there are two types I don't like taking because they're the biggest risks one is athletes and the other is entrepreneurs and he said well why, why is that and he said because they've grown up with this idea never give up and you know that they believe that they could achieve everything by never giving up and one of, you know even if that's sort of pushing through to the absolute limits so I'm really curious because you've got these you know Obviously, sorry, put that into context. It's like, you know, climbing a mountain and never giving up, and the guide says, you've got to go back. You can imagine if somebody says, no, no, I'm going to do this, they go to the top and they're never seen again. Whereas the instinct is like to complete it, but the guide's telling you to go home. You're a mountain climber, you're an entrepreneur as well. You know, that whole sort of thing about never giving up. I'm just thinking about advice for startup founders out there is that, you know, you've obviously hit a home run here with it, it ain't easy. By the way, with Glazik, and in no way, I don't want to underrate the effort that you put in. You've you've built a very successful business, which is growing, and you're on to something there. You know, it's certainly in the right place at the right time. But there must be a lot of founders out there who sort of start something and don't have the kind of early successes that you do. Never give up. Do you follow that advice all the time? Do you have sort of you know an opinion on that? Um, I,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I. When I think about climbing mountains or doing something challenging and maybe this will go back to my background my military background um, that sort of never give up never say die sort of um, philosophy is important but in my opinion it's not as important as like do the training right like if you if you know you're going to try and accomplish something whether it's I you know, I, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, or I want to, you know, start a company or whatever. Like, figure out, you know, what are what are the elements? When I say do the training, I don't I don't just mean in terms of education or whatever, but what are the elements that I need to do in order to be prepared mm-hmm. for whatever this this challenge is? Um, so, and again, maybe that's that's probably because of how I you know, how, how my my previous career was, you know, in the military, you know, everything that we did was about like being prepared, doing the training or, or another, another way that we said it was, um, uh, amateurs practice until they can't, until they can do it right. But professionals practice until they can't do it wrong. If that makes sense. Wow.
1: Yeah. I've never heard that before, but that's powerful. Say that again. Amateurs practice until they can't do it right. What? Well, sorry, say it no, again. Amateurs,
0: practice, I'm being amateurs an amateur. practice
1: until they can do it right. Right, yeah. Professionals practice until they can't
0: do, do it, it wrong. wrong. Gotcha.
1: Now, I wonder as well, with your background, is that when you talk about doing the training, I look at the companies that you worked for. I think it's a great case study in why it makes sense. Straight out of the the gates, not necessarily to go and work for a startup, but to go and get your wings, so to speak, to go and get your training in the corporate world or in the military, because you can learn a heck of a lot and bring that to the table as a startup founder, right? You know, later on, you don't. I think there's a lot of pressure, isn't there, for people to feel that, that you know, the twenty year old out of Stanford University. That's sort of what a startup founder is, but in reality, I think the most rounded startup founders are like you, who've got that experience and have done the training, so to speak, because they have that sort of world experience and they've seen how things work. And that's the training. Yeah, I mean, I, I,
0: I don't, I don't mean to, um, I don't mean to say that you know there's anything wrong with like a 22 year old coming out of college and starting a company um, or working for somebody else's startup. Yeah. Um, but I certainly think that. There's, there's, some, there's some value that may not always be uh, totally apparent, but there's some value from just having a diversity of experience. Mm.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think when you say totally apparent as well, I think for people to realize that that's an option and not to feel pressured to go and start a startup because that's what other people are doing, it's okay to go and work for a corporate. It's not a you know a sign of not fulfilling your dream. Sometimes it's just a case of timing, isn't it? And going and get the experience, as you say. So I think a lot of people think that, oh, I've got to do the startup. But I think what we're trying to say is, look, look at what Dan has done. I think there's a real case for going out and getting that experience first because that puts you in a better position. So there we go. I mean, wow, there's so much more to talk about, Dan, but we're running out of time. We're done. And it's been fascinating. Wow, talking- that was, that went so quickly. That, that went quickly. There you go. Dan Itzara, everybody co-founder and COO of Glassic and a real privilege to have you on the show and to learn not just about the journey of Glassic, but the journey of Dan Itzara and also all the experience that you bring to the table from your background. I really appreciate that. And a bit of a learning experience for me as well. Dan, where do we find out more about you? Um, well, uh, you can go to, obviously I'll, I'll pitch my company website, www.glassic.com
0: spelled G-L-A-Z-Z-I-Q.com. Um, but um, in terms of Finding me, LinkedIn slash Ian slash Dan D-A-N-I-T-S-A-R-A. Really easy to find me. Have kind of a unique name, so I'm
1: easy to find on any social media network. Excellent. All the details in yeah. the show. Uh, yeah, Dan, please come back on and share an update in the future as well. We'd love for you to come and update us on your journey. We'll be watching you. Thanks very much.
0: You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.